Good afternoon, everyone. Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series that we started um, a little over two months ago in the Gospel of John. So on this Lord's Day, what we're going to be taking a look at is the very end of John chapter 2, going into the beginning of John chapter 3, where we are going to encounter a man, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a man, a man of high stature, a man of intellect. And he, after witnessing Jesus perform many signs, is curious. He's intrigued. And as such, he decides to go and meet this Jesus. And he has a very interesting conversation with him, something that I'm sure he was not anticipating to have. And as we look at this section, at this passage, one of the things that, you know, I, I, I hope that you're able to see is, you know, the, the reality and the fact of the necessity of not just faith, but the necessity of the Spirit himself to understand the things of God. Now, if you remember, the theme of this book, of this gospel that the Apostle John um, writes is simple, is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ and that we have eternal life through believing in him. And if we were to have a key verse, it would be John 20, verses 31, where John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if you recall, the last two Lord's Days, as we were looking through John chapter 10, we noticed a number of things. One, we saw Jesus perform his great, his first miracle, his first sign at the wedding in Cana, where he turns the water into wine. And then we saw last Lord's Day, as Pastor Jason brought him going into the temple and um, chasing out the money changers. And then undoubtedly, for the people that were there, they were amazed, they were awed at what they were witnessing. Could this man truly be who he says he is? Well, we will find out a bit more today. But before I'm diving in, let's first and foremost go to the Lord our God in prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for allowing and enabling us to come now to your word, to not only read, but understand. And Lord, I ask that you may grant us understanding. God, please don't let us be like the Jews here um, that we will read in Nicodemus. Lord, where we don't truly see what you are teaching. But rather, God, I pray that you may grant us open eyes and open ears to hear, to see, and open hearts, Lord, to receive what it is that you're trying to teach us in this passage, in this section, O oh Lord. Guide me, Lord, as an imperfect vessel, um, and enable me, Lord, to only speak the truth as it pertains to your word. And Lord, I pray that we all may be edified by what we will read today in this section. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So let's first start again by reading this 
passage or this section. So again, we're going to be starting in John chapter 2. We're going to be finishing up um, this passage by reading, um, starting in verse 23. And then we're going to go into John chapter 3 and we're going to read the first 12 verses. So again, starting in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now, when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, you know, at first glance, as we look at this passage, in particular, chapter 2, verses 23 when you read the text, it would appear as though the Jews who saw Jesus performing these signs became true believers. I mean, the text itself even says in verse 23 that many people believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. However, see, while we as mere humans can only examine the outward actions, God, however, can examine the heart. Though they were excited that Jesus appeared to be someone special, I mean, he was changing water into wines, he was going into the temple, chasing out the money uh, changers. That excitement that they had did not necessarily translate into true saving faith. Jesus, being God and therefore being examined, able to examine the hearts of men, knew that this outward excitement was not the result of an inner change, of regeneration. See, while in this passage that we saw here, Jesus doesn't here call out their lack of faith, we do see in future texts that we will get to Jesus doing that. But just by way of example, John chapter 6, this is the passage or the chapter where Jesus is feeding over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. In this account, you know, the, the crowd gets excited to the point that if you read the text, they want to crown him as king. Now, Jesus, knowing that this, was, that this is what they wanted to do, withdraws from there and goes to another town. But the crowd goes and finds him. Finally, Jesus 
knowing their intentions, knowing their hearts, sets them straight. We read in John chapter 6, verses 26, Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Hmm. They did believe in Jesus, but it was not as a savior. Rather, as I've indicated before, it's as a glorified genie. You know, that crowd in John chapter 6 that first started to follow Jesus, if you read the beginning of John chapter 6, the reason that they started to follow him was because they saw that Jesus was healing a bunch of people who were sick. So then this intrigues them. So then they follow him. And then next thing you know, not only is Jesus healing people, but now he's feeding thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish. They were amazed at what he was doing. But see, the works that Jesus was doing was not meant to be something to where now it led, them, it led the people to follow them so that they can eat and never have to worry about getting sick. But rather, it was to attest to the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that he has come to save them from their sins. But that was not what they wanted Jesus for. So... If you continue to read in John chapter 6, and I won't go deep into that because obviously we will get to that point. Jesus will now speak to them hard truths. Hard truths similar to what we're going to read here in John chapter 3. But what ends up happening is once Jesus starts to teach to them and preach to them those difficult truths, they abandon Jesus. They leave. So, like in chapter 6, we see here in chapter 2 that Jesus knows that their belief was not of the salvific sort. It wasn't the result of them having a change of heart. Therefore, Jesus does not waste his time with them. He withdraws from them, as the text indicates. Now, of the people that witnessed some of these signs, there was a man Nicodemus, who sees the things that Jesus is doing and is intrigued by it and, to his credit, wanted to know more. This man was Nicodemus. We read in chapter 3, verse 1, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this man, being of the Pharisees, if you know anything in regards to the Pharisees, he would have been a man of renown and of learning. See, the Pharisees in that time, they were the experts. They were the ones who knew the Bible, who interpreted the scriptures. They were the ones who were perceived as, well, these are the holy ones. These are the righteous ones. So Nicodemus, for Nicodemus to be a part of this group would have meant that he was one of the theological experts. And like the other Jews who witnessed these signs, Nicodemus saw what Jesus was doing. And again, to his credit, he did want to search out and find out more. So then we read that in verse 2, this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to why it was that Nicodemus decided to go and visit Jesus at night. Some have speculated that since he was a man of great learning and of great intellect and was curious to find out more, he wanted to go talk to Jesus, but he didn't want for anyone to notice that he was talking to him. I mean, if he, a Pharisee, were to go and talk to this 
uneducated Nazarene. I mean, what would the people think? And yet, you know, people such as R.C. Sproul and John Calvin who have posited this theory. But then you've had others like Matthew Henry who have theorized that, you know, the reason why Nicodemus went at night was not necessarily because he was afraid or because he didn't want for people to, to, to see him talking with Jesus, but rather as a sign of respect for him. Because, see, Jesus was busy during the day doing kingdom work. So Nicodemus wanted to wait until Jesus had some time where he knew he can go and talk with Jesus. Now, personally, my, my personal sentiments kind of leans more so towards the former reason, more so as I think there was more of a pride element going on. But the reality of the fact is, is that the text does not give us a reason why Nicodemus decides to come at night. It really doesn't. The text merely states that he comes at night. Whatever was Nicodemus's motivation for coming at night, we don't know. But what we do know is that when he talks with Jesus, well, Jesus is going to be teaching him more than he bargained for. We continue to read in verse two. So he comes to Jesus at night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. So the first thing we know, so it wasn't even though Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus to talk to Jesus, it wasn't just him who noticed these signs and acknowledged that, man, this guy is more than just some random person. He says, we itself. So we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So like the Jews in chapter 2, Nicodemus acknowledges the fact that, see, no random person can do the signs that Jesus was doing unless God has sent him. So clearly, they recognize that Jesus was sent by God. You know, one important thing, just to, to, to make note of as it pertains to, to this, and it goes without saying because they realized it, but, you know, sometimes we may forget this. Only those sent by God can perform true miracles. Throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, we see men who were chosen by God performing great miracles. You had Moses parting the Red Sea, Joshua causing the sun to stand still. You had Elijah who raised the widow's son from the dead. These were true miracles attesting to the fact that those men were truly called by God. No one who was not sent by God can perform these true miracles. They can perform counterfeit miracles, signs that appear to be genuine, but in reality are fake. That's what we see, for example, with the magicians in, the, um, in Egypt during the time of Exodus. That is what Paul for example, warns about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, when he talks about people coming with lying signs. That is what Jesus himself warns about in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, when he talks about false prophets and false Christ coming with their miracles, their false miracles, to lead, if possible, the elect. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this section here, he writes this. He says, it is true that the Bible warns us about false Christ and false prophets who will perform signs and wonders. But Satan's so-called miracles are lying wonders. Satan can only perform incredibly clever tricks, but they are not true miracles. They are phony signs because God is not God or Satan, excuse me, is not God. 
Satan cannot create something out of nothing. He cannot bring life out of death. He cannot do the things that only God can do. Now, some of the Pharisees later on in Jesus' ministry were so hard-hearted that rather than acknowledge that Jesus was sent by God, they chose to claim that the signs that Jesus was doing was by the power of Satan. So in saying that, they condemned themselves. Nicodemus, however, was not that arrogant as to make that type of blasphemous claim. See, the works that Jesus was doing, were, they were clearly genuine. There was no beating around the bush there. There was no hiding that fact. So Nicodemus, being a student of the scriptures, and knowing that only a person sent from God could do what Jesus was doing, he had to recognize the fact that Jesus was truly sent by God. However, although there was that recognition that Jesus was sent by God, the problem was that there was not a full acknowledgement that he was sent by God as Israel's redeemer. Nicodemus only sees Jesus as a teacher. That's what he says. He says, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Unfortunately, Nicodemus at this point in his life was blinded to the truth of who Jesus really was. He had enough learning to recognize that Jesus was someone special, but that learning did not translate to a true understanding of how special Jesus truly was. He saw the signs, but the signs did not bring him to the truth. He could not see the reality of who that man was that he was having the conversation with. He was blinded. And Jesus knowing that he's having a conversation with a very learned person, but still a spiritually blinded man, he answers him. And he answers him based on that fact. He says, truly, truly, in verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus, to paraphrase, tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you know, you, you see me as merely a teacher. I, I want you to know that I'm more than a teacher. I, I am your savior. I am Israel's king. But see, in order for you to realize this about me, oh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You know, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night wanting to learn more about Jesus. Well, Jesus was about to school him. He starts off by exclaiming, explaining to Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, he needed to be born again. And I want you to remember what the Apostle John, at the very beginning of this gospel, writes in the prologue in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Remember what he says. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. So we see the Apostle John alluding to this being born in the prologue. And now we see Jesus laying this out in this conversation with Nicodemus. Now, there are some, in looking at the phrase born again, there are some who have argued that the text is probably more accurately rendered born from above. And then others, of course, maintain that how it's rendered born again is probably the most accurate according to the Greek. You know, whatever 
is the more accurate rendering is besides the point because the proposition which is being communicated is the same regardless. In order to see the kingdom of God, there must be a spiritual birth that takes place. One must be made new. Carnal eyes cannot behold spiritual matters. Like so many other people, unfortunately, that Jesus talks with, Nicodemus having carnal eyes and not spiritual eyes, he takes what Jesus says completely literal. We see Nicodemus respond in chapter and verse four. How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? See, when you don't have a heart that is regenerated, when God has not given you those spiritual eyes, you will never grasp what Jesus teaches. It takes the spirit of God to understand the things of God. Paul, writing to the church in, church in Corinth, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man cannot, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Again, it takes the spirit of God to understand the things of God. Nicodemus, even though he was a learned man, he was a scholar, he was an expert, he was still a natural man. He did not yet possess the spirit of God, and as such, he could not properly discern the words that Jesus spoke. Well, you know, there are some people, when they hear this, when they read this account, they might object, they might say, well, why wouldn't Jesus just talk plainly? I mean, why does he have to talk in these metaphors and stuff like that that makes it hard for people to understand? Why not just talk directly with the people? I mean, his own disciples in another passage asks him this very question when Jesus is talking to a crowd of people in parables. And this is how Jesus answered. And I want you to hear this. This comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 through 17. So Jesus, answering his disciples as to why he speaks in parables and metaphors, he writes this. He says, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been granted. For whoever has to him, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on learning, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people have become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So he speaks in this way so that those whom God has granted to understand may understand. And to everyone else, well, seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear See, Jesus oftentimes speaks in this parabolic form in order to keep those whom he did not want to understand from understanding. 
Now, we already saw an instance of this in the previous chapter when Jesus spoke of destroying the temple of his body. The people did not understand what in the world that meant. Now, even his disciples at that point in time were kind of confused, but after Jesus rises, resurrects from the grave, they understood. We will see this confusion again in future texts. When we read through them, what I want you to, to make note of as we look through this, for example, the woman in the well, where Jesus talks about that living water. Or John chapter 6, when Jesus talks about eating of his flesh and drinking his blood. Things that if you don't have spiritual ears or spiritual eyes, may sound very, very perplexing, almost cannibalistic. But if you do have spiritual eyes, you truly grasp. And I want you to know it as we read through those passages, that those whom God has called... They gain an understanding, but those whom God has not called, they remain befuddled. And unfortunately, that is what we are seeing here with Nicodemus. He's confused. Jesus answers him after he asks this perplexing question. Uh, how can a, a man be born again? This doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus, what are you talking about? This, 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 this can't happen. And Jesus answered in verses 5 and 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he repeats what he says, but expands on it. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when we look at this passage, this section here, there are have been some who have tried to isolate being born of water and being born of the Spirit as meaning two completely different things. For example, there are those who would say that being born of the water was pertaining to a natural birth and being born of the Spirit was being born spiritually. So essentially what they would argue is that Jesus is saying that a person must be both physically born and spiritually born in order to enter the kingdom of God. Then you have others who would argue that being born of water is a reference to water baptism. So essentially, those who believe this would argue that both water baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit is key for entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, I think both interpretations are wrong. I think that in order to grasp what Jesus is getting at here in this section, verses 5 and 6, it's important that you have an understanding of the Old Testament, which someone that's a Pharisee, like Nicodemus, should have. If Nicodemus was as knowledgeable in the scriptures as his title would have him suppose, then his mind would have immediately went to a few passages. For example, you have Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 3, where the prophet writes, But now, O listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So we see this allusion to pouring out water and pouring out of the spirit. And then we see in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 37. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And these are just a couple of passages. You can go to um, the book of Joel. You can continue on in the book of Ezekiel and see the same kind of connection there. But just in these two passages that we read, we see references to water and to the spirit alluding essentially to a spiritual transformation. So when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born of water and the spirit, he's not referencing two separate things, but rather he is referencing one event, regeneration. Now, it's been about a year since we've talked about regeneration during the systematic theology series on salvation. So by way of just remembrance, when we talk about regeneration, we are talking about that work of the Holy Spirit where the formerly stony heart is replaced with a fleshy heart. That formerly darkened mind is enlightened in the knowledge of Christ and that formerly enslaved will is renewed and enabled to answer God's call and embrace Jesus Christ. It is that monergistic work that Jesus is alluding to. In other words, it is that work of God alone that Jesus is alluding to when he talks about being born of the water and spirit. Not a natural birth mixed with a spiritual birth or water baptism mixed with spiritual baptism. John Calvin, um, commenting on this passage, he, he writes this. He says, by water, therefore, is meant nothing more than the inward purification and invigoration which is produced by the Holy Spirit. Besides, it is not unusual to employ the word and instead of that is when the latter clause is intended to explain the former. And the view which I have taken is supported by what follows. For when Christ immediately proceeds to assign the reason why we must be born again without mentioning the water. Now he's talking about verse six here. That which is of flesh is flesh and that which is of the spirit of spirit. So he says, for when Christ immediately proceeds to assign the reason why we must be born again without mentioning the water, he shows that the newness of life, which he requires, is produced by the spirit alone. Whence it follows that water must not be separated from the spirit. So in other words, when we when he says that, you know, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he is talking about one act. Regeneration, this is all of the spirit itself. Cleansing, removing our filth, like it says in Ezekiel 36. And then enlightening us by giving us his spirit to understand the things of God. Now, another important note as it pertains to this section here and in regards to being born again. Jesus, in this passage, in verses 5, and then also in verse 3, he makes it clear that only those who are born again can see and enter into the kingdom of God? Well, this raises an important question. At least it did to me. You know, in our church, we're all post-mill in our eschatology. We acknowledge the rule and reign of King Jesus. We know that Christ's millennial reign is not something that will come about in the future, but it's currently going on right now. We know that the works that Jesus did attested to the fact that the kingdom had come. I mean, Psalm 110, Jesus says, the Lord said to my Lord, rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 72, he will rule from sea to sea. First Corinthians 15, he will reign until all his enemies has been placed under his feet. The final enemy being death. 
So if all of that is true and he is king and he is reigning, how are we to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage that only those who are born again can see and enter into this kingdom? How do we as post-mill believers reconcile that verse with the understanding of God's present reign? Well, this is where the understanding or understanding the spiritual nature of God's kingdom becomes so important. God is reigning and his kingdom is present. He is king. However, it is a spiritual kingdom. Only those who are in Christ can truly see this kingdom and properly acknowledge it. Christ is reigning and ruling as we speak. But those who deny God will never see, much less submit to him as proper king. What they will do is they will continue to bow down to the fake king, the counterfeit king, Satan. Now, that being said, obviously, the spiritual nature of the kingdom does not negate the earthly implications. All of those who are in Christ and are and are in submission to his kingship will place their lives in conformity to the standards of the true king. Now, evidently, as Jesus is saying all of this, Nicodemus must have been giving Jesus a very puzzled look because in explaining his need to be born again, Jesus goes on to tell him in verse 7, do not be amazed at what I am telling you. You must be born again. Don't be, mar don't be marveled. Don't be shocked at what I'm saying. It's quite simple. You must be born again. And then Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus something that I'm sure if his mind wasn't already blown, now it will be in verse 8, where he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Being a Pharisee, no one was as stringent as on maintaining the law as they were. Remember, we read in the Gospels that, you know, they tithe mint and cumin. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, even told the people that unless their righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees, they would not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So for Nicodemus, by virtue of him being a Pharisee and his strict law keeping, he probably thought that for sure that he earned entrance into the kingdom of God. Whatever ego Nicodemus may have had as to his right into God's kingdom, Jesus brings down by letting him know uh, the monergistic nature of being born again. The fact that he doesn't cooperate with his regeneration, but it is all of God. It is not by works of the law, but by the pure grace of God that a person is born again. Much like the wind, which you have no idea where it comes from, or where it is going. So you have no idea how God works out his grace of regeneration on his elect people. But you do see the fruit of his regenerative work. F.F. Bruce, who was a Bible scholar and an author, he writes this in his commentary on this passage. He says that the hidden work of the spirit in the human heart cannot be controlled or seen, but its effects are unmistakably evident. So you see the working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing all that he can to get across the point to Nicodemus that salvation is of the Lord. He is the one who changes the heart. He is the one who pours out his spirit on his elect. He is the one who washes away our sins. It is all of him 
And to us, it is all of grace. Well, again, Nicodemus is perplexed. He asks Jesus in verse 9, he says, how, how can these things be? I, 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 it doesn't make sense, Lord. It, I, I don't understand Jesus. And then Jesus answers in verse 10, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Again, you know, Nicodemus could not wrap his mind around what Jesus was telling him. It seemed too fanciful for an intellect, a scholar like him. I mean, Nicodemus, again, was a man of intelligence. He wanted to know. He was a scholar. However, he was a man that needed to have a full grasp of something in order to accept it. That element to his character was an initial hindrance to him truly embracing the claims of Jesus. Once Jesus started talking about being born again, Nicodemus, as we saw in, um, in previous passages, could not grasp what Jesus meant. It sounded too strange. It was implausible. Come on, Jesus. I mean, can a person really, really come out of his mom's womb a second time? I mean, what, what, what are you telling me here? And then when Jesus starts talking about all this being like the wind, well, again, for a man who doesn't have, at that point in time, eyes of faith, I mean, it, he could not grasp it. And Nicodemus's head, his pride, got in the way of him truly understanding. And the sad reality of the fact is, is that for many people, you know, while we can scoff at Nicodemus for not getting or grasping these things, for many people, the claims of Christianity seem too extreme, too fanciful to believe. And rather than humbly marvel at the hand of God that can do the impossible, they shake their heads in disbelief. And we see this all the time around us where people wanting to know, wanting to gain knowledge, wanting to understand, refuse to believe the pure words that we have in the word. It's too fanciful. I mean, what you mean to tell me that some random stutterer just split the Red Sea? You mean to tell me? that some uneducated person just raising someone from the dead, that some snake talks to some woman thousands of years ago, that some global flood somehow wiped away all of civilization, that a man lived almost to be a thousand years old. I mean, come on here. The pride, the desire to be knowledgeable and to be smart has blocked so many people from truly understanding the things of God. And Nicodemus was one of them. But how many of us have stumbled because we refuse to just be humble enough to marvel at God doing the impossible, to accept and embrace these claims by faith? Or do we shake our heads in disbelief? Listen to John Calvin again, again, commenting on this section. He says that everything that Nicodemus hears appears monstrous because he does not understand the manner of it. So that there is no greater obstacle to us than our own pride. That is, we always wish to be wise beyond what is proper. And therefore, we reject with diabolical pride everything that is not explained to our reason. As if it were proper to limit the infinite power of God to our poor capacity. If we don't know, if we can't prove it, if we can't see it, we are not believing it. No way. And it's because of that pride 
that someone like Nicodemus was stumbling over the obvious truth. And it's because of that pride that so many people around us today stumble at the clear truth of the Bible. They would much rather believe truly fanciful things than what's contained in the scriptures. And uh, it's so true what Paul writes in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. Do we not see that all around us, brothers and sisters? So many people who unwilling to accept these outlandish things in their minds, they accept plenty of outlandish things. I mean, we literally live in a time where people don't know the difference between a man and a woman. We literally live in a time to where the obvious is no longer obvious. And they accept those silly claims, but refuse to accept the truth as we see it in God's word. Now, this is not to say that we need to have a childish faith, a baby faith, but we must have a childlike faith. You know, sometimes we will not fully comprehend something that God says in his word. But if our mindset is that we have to fully connect all the dots in order to believe, we will never understand because our pride is getting in the way. Many times, you know, we have to sit back and acknowledge the wisdom and power of God. Like Paul in Romans chapter 11, after he spends the entire first section of, the, of that book explaining the gospel and the mystery of the gospel and how the promise of salvation even to the Gentiles was proclaimed even in the Old Testament. And then Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. You know, sometimes we have to be humble enough just to do that. Again, it doesn't mean that we remain, you know, stubbornly ignorant. But you must understand, no matter how much you may seek to know, guess what? You are not God. Therefore, you will not become omniscient. You will not know all things. There will be things that will be a mystery. And then sometimes you must humble yourselves. Now, unfortunately for Nicodemus, he was not there yet. His pride was keeping him from grasping what Jesus was explaining to him. So Jesus, I wouldn't say necessarily mocking him, but then Jesus says, uh, wait, you're a teacher in Israel? You're the wise guy? You're the expert? And you don't understand these things, which the Bible clearly teaches? Huh. I mean, I don't know what rabbinical school you went to or what tuition you paid, but it seemed like you didn't get your money's worth, Nicodemus. So he tells them, and then he goes on, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. You know, sometimes it's not necessarily that a person just doesn't understand, it's that they refuse to accept what they see and what they hear. They refuse to accept what is evident. I mean, God tells us, Paul says in Romans 1, the truth about God is evident. It is not that there is enough, there's not enough evidence, it is that there is a refusal to accept what is true. Now, we see in this passage, Jesus, when he's, when he's talking to Nicodemus, 
He's not only talking about Nicodemus, but is referring to others along with him who are unwilling to accept what Jesus is saying. And we know this because the word you in this passage, where he says you do not accept our testimony, is plural in this instance. And if you go back to the verse 2, Again, we already, um, I already noted this, but Nicodemus lets Jesus know that we know that you are a teacher sent from God. So we know already that it wasn't just Nicodemus who was, was seeing these things. He may have been the only one to go to Jesus and approach him, but he was not the only one who saw these signs. And Jesus is telling them that you are, you don't believe, you refuse to accept it. So even though Nicodemus, again, was the only one, to come and talk. He wasn't the only one who acknowledged that Jesus was someone sent by God. Yet though they all witnessed the signs and acknowledged that he was God sent, they could not bring themselves to accept the testimony. This reminds me of what the apostle John says in the prologue to this gospel. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And then Jesus goes on in verse 12 to say, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you are unable, in other words, to believe the basic and fundamental things of God, you will not believe the deeper things of God. Unbelief is why Nicodemus remained ignorant to what Jesus was saying. As I already stated, he was a scholar. He was an expert, so to speak. He was an intellect, intellectual but he was still, at least at this point, an unbeliever. His unbelief kept him blind to the clear truth that Jesus was conveying. Much in the same way that unbelief was keeping Nicodemus blind, unbelief can keep you blind as well. You will never understand God's words and his dealing if you remain in unbelief. And it's, as I was studying this, I was reminded of Something that St. Anselm of Canterbury, a, a monk who lived during the Middle Ages, said. He wrote, I believe in order to understand. So, ask yourself this question. Do you believe? Nicodemus was a scholar, but he did not believe. He saw the miracles that Jesus was doing, and while it intrigued him, it did not convince him fully. As a result, he remained ignorant to the things that Jesus was teaching him. He could not wrap his mind around the simple fact that regeneration is of the Lord. To be born again was not anything that he can do, but that's all of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God was based on God's prerogative and not man's. It did not involve works that Nicodemus or anyone else could perform. It is a sovereign act of God. You can't see where the Spirit decides to act or when the Spirit decides to act and regenerate a person, but you do see the effect of the Spirit working in a person. While it may seem fanciful and outlandish to some, it is a basic and simple truth. So, will you humbly accept the truth that Jesus is conveying here, and not only here, but will you humbly accept the truths that Jesus conveys throughout the Scriptures? Or, will you act like Nicodemus? And remain in unbelief and refuse to accept what is so evident. Will you find some excuse as to why these things can't be? 
Will you create in your minds excuses for why it is that what the Bible says simply just cannot be? Will you find some loopholes or will you humble yourselves and believe what Jesus says? Again, we're not asking to have a childish faith. We're not asking to be and ignorant and babies. The writer to Hebrews lambasts the people because they refused to move on to more solid material and remained only wanting milk. So no, you are to grow and be knowledgeable in the word, but there must be a humble acknowledgement to the fact that, again, you are not omniscient. There are things that are far beyond your understanding and comprehension, and more importantly, that you must believe what God says if you truly want to understand. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Those who refuse to believe, they remain blinded to the truth. Humble yourselves. Believe the testimony of Jesus by faith. We have in here, in the word, God's testimony. We see what he has done. Humble yourselves and believe what it is that he has written and that he has done. We will see throughout the rest of this gospel more and more instances of Jesus attesting to the fact that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and that in him we have eternal life. Matter of fact, next Lord's Day, we're going to see him say that very thing. If you believe in me, you will not perish, but have eternal life. If you believe in me, are you going to do that? Or will you reject it? Humble yourself and believe the testimony of Christ by faith. Let's pray.